0: folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I got to work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering... Is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online including bonus interviews and special subscriber only episodes if you can afford to contribute a little more every month ten dollar donation gets you exclusive vip access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes a kind of executive producer position but hey every dollar helps a lot and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast so if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash the Korea file and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right, here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a biweekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet on this episode. What's it like to go undercover inside corporate Korea? This summer, The Korea File is featuring a series of interviews with Michael Prentice, a PhD candidate in the University of Michigan's Department of Anthropology, on the country's hugely influential chaebol. Prentice interned for a year at a Seoul area company conducting semi-covert academic research on the unique corporate culture of South Korea. On this episode, he discusses Korean corporate security protocol and the complex relationship between the chaebol's historical development and the typical narrative structure of Korean history. He also explains how he obtained his position as an undercover anthropologist. Nepotism, hangover strategies, the undercover life revealed. This is part two of a conversation with Michael Prentice.
1: One of the things that's, that's tricky about Chebol that people don't realize is that, you know, first that Ball occupy at least, you know, on average probably 15 to 20 companies. You have someone like Samsung that has about 60 to 70 companies. with are your official sub- subsidiaries, um... Some, and a lot of those, a lot of those conglomerate groups, you'll have companies that are public, companies that are not public, so publicly traded or not. The financial stuff just gets very tricky very quickly. Um, so if you ever, you can go on the Fair Trade website, the Korean Fair Trade Commission website, download what they publish um, every year, which are the updated shareholding charts. So they're not just lists of numbers, but they're actually showing which companies own which companies. And you get very simple ones in some cases. LG happens to be very simple. Just a holdings company, some subsidiaries, and then like a couple more subsidiaries. You look at Samsung's; it looks like a electric circuit board because it's just so complicated.
0: So there's really a like thick layer of opaqueness in in like the nature of most chaebols. And uh, some say that this befuddles the Korean legal system. Uh, the opacity gives them a unique power and control over employees, their products, their profits and the prices that are put up at retail. So would you agree that maybe, for cultural reasons, Korea is a society that is really good at concealing and hiding? Well, I should say that even in the US, I mean,
1: corporations are not studied um, in terms of you know what's actually going on inside them. As an anthropologist who studies corporations is very interesting, corporations cross-culturally just not a hugely studied topic, for the very reason that corporations are kinds of institutions that do not want to release information um, to outsiders. Sensitive information. Um, even as I'm writing my dissertation, I'm—I wouldn't say I'm censoring myself, but I'm trying to be aware of what it is that I'm saying. Um, and so, I—I—I. I, 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 on one hand, you know, all corporations, I would say, are very similar in this regard. This is not a Korean. Thing. Not necessarily a Korean thing. Koreans, <laughs> Chepul, however, are exceptional in some ways. Anyone who's ever tried to go inside a company or gone, say, for an interview, is highly aware of the security apparatus that Chapel companies run. I mean, you have to, um, and you have to put uh, tape over the phones, uh, over the camera holes on your phone, both front and back. You have to check your computer. You have to check your USB or put it in a um, you put it in a plastic bag uh, that's registered this is at the door you know before you go through a metal detector um, so there's a certain degree that there is a, a kind of a security apparatus for uh, tuning to you know what goes in and what goes out so I mean, wh- why the
0: emphasis placed on, on secrecy well I mean obviously for financial reasons
1: yeah I think part of it has to do with gossip I mean I think this this is hopefully something that I can develop, you know, more in my dissertation is the role of these back channels and and the idea that you know important things happen through back channels um, and that a corporation needs to at least try to prevent a lot of what's the back channel talk while at the same time relying on back channel talk to to get what kind of the real information is and um, but just to give an example I uh, interviewed one woman. Um, who used to work at one of the top five companies, and and I don't think this would be strange in any of the other top five companies, is that every day they erased their hard drives. Everything they were working on had to be placed on a cloud or an external hard drive. Their hard drives were automatically erased by the IT team, and that the IT team also could somehow, I'm not exactly sure how technic- technologically possible this was, but go through and check if they had used the word president or chairman in any of their emails or documents. And if they had, they were flagged and said, you should not have a um, a document that has the word chambered in it because, well, not really sure why. But part of the reason I think has to do with the stronger regulatory um, regime in Korea. Uh, it's, it's As much as it's liberalized or seen to be neoliberal after 97, Korea has just much higher uh, reporting standards, and a r- bigger regulatory apparatus just for the large companies. Um, so it gets another reason why uh, defining the chaebol is kind of confusing. So the government actually defined, I think, starting in 1987, what a large company was by assets, and they actually specifically designate 30 companies that are um, seen as daikyo. So... Uh, once you're in that 30-company window, you get special regulations about what you have to report and the scrutiny that your financial documents undergo. What's
0: the conflict like, then, for having such a highly regulated uh, series of industries and also the chumminess that must be part of the government and Chable you know, partnership?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know, chumminess um, is a good question. So who's a friend and who's an enemy? Is always a good question. I mean, when I was working inside this uh, small company, you—it's not—it's not quite like you read about it in the books, uh, where you know it's like, oh, I'm going to go meet with a regulator over lunch today, and we're going to hammer out a deal or something. Um, you, whenever you have chumminess, you have equal parts um, anxiety and enmity towards others. Um, I was working in the steel industry, and the amount of of uh, vitriol or uh, well. On a a good day, competitiveness, on a bad day, vitriol hurled at competitor companies uh, in the same industry was quite high Um, in the sense of, you know, let's say Samsung and LG, just to to pick a fake comparison. I mean, they're also competing for um, government money, if we're going to imagine, to use kind of an imaginary example. So part of the reason they also don't want to let information out is to prevent uh, cross-leaks to other companies. Uh, this is a huge deal. With companies, like when employees leave, they have to sign um, you know, documents saying, you know, I'm not going to take any with you, non-compete clauses, that kind of thing. Part of the reason is to prevent poaching by other competitors. Mm. Um, so when I was working at this one company, they talked a lot about how people would get poached by so-and-so company. Um, and that's part of the reason why they do prevent this other stuff, rather than just image-making or a general level of... Uh, controlled for, you know, no purpose.
0: Okay, I'm quoting this from a series of comments on a comment thread on an article about Chabuls, and this is kind of a controversial historical perspective, but I found it kind of seductive, so I'm going to read what this person wrote and ask you what you think. They write, It's become a worn cliché to say that South Korea rose from the ashes of the Korean War as if post-war Korea was a blank slate wiped clean. The factors that helped fuel rapid post-war Korean growth were foundations for modern society laid during Japanese colonial period, two, American help after the war in the form of direct aid, technology transfers, and access to the American market, as well as the permanent military protection of the U.S. armed forces. Uh, Many Korean construction companies also got their start working with uh, the U.S. uh, Army engineers, And finally, uh, the guided crony capitalism policies of successive post-war Korean regimes which have tied everything together and guided the chaebol. So it kind of sounds like an attractive way of summing up stuff, but it also seems a little bit apologist for a lot of different things.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, modern Korean history after the war, people do try and tie it up in lots of neat different ways. Part of what I like about kind of studying on the ground is you just realize that stuff is not neat it's not pretty it's not, not just as succinct like, as a message it's not as, as succinct as a, even if you have a positive uh, or negative message it's not quite as succinct as well Park Tung-y was either good or bad and you know x y or z happened it's just very lumpy chunky and you know hard to make narrative sense of in some
0: sense so that's the difference between academia yeah. and propaganda is one is very nice to listen to and easy and one makes you think too hard well yeah
1: I wouldn't extend so much uh kindness towards academia but (laughs) uh, you know I think developmentalism has strong roots in in Korea or Korean studies Uh, hard to shake off even when I was just starting out it was just it was an easy kind of um, narrative to fit into and what
0: brought you to this kind of academic work
1: oh I had always been interested in anthropology uh, and interaction and language Um, I got my after I graduated university, I worked at a company in New York for three years, and we actually ended up contracting a lot with Samsung and Hyundai, so I got a chance to um, do background research on these corporate structures, which is just completely different than the U.S. or European companies that we were working with. As I, part of your job. As part of my job, yeah. I worked, we had meetings, conference calls with um, Korean um, kind of representatives who would come in to New York, and then I had a chance to also read. Uh, I read a biography of Chung Ju the mythical founder of Hyundai, which I highly recommend reading.
0: Uh, mythical in the sense that he's like an icon.
1: Uh, mythical in the sense that he had a yes, he's an icon. He also had just had a kind of a wild life. The biography is, uh, I think, it was actually written in English by a little-known business school professor, and it's very favorable to him. And, and but it just has so many interesting details about Chung Ju life. He was born. Um, you know, I think on close to on the, what would now be the North Korean side of the border, tried to escape from home uh, three or four times, finally set up a little shop in Seoul. So not very different from the Samsung kind of um, landowning families that were, um, you know, very close to colonial apparatus, you know, just kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, was a man of improvisation. Didn't know what he was doing, but figured out a way to do it. He's very famous in the shipbuilding world, in the construction world, for what he was able to do, um, the promises he was able to make. Uh, he was also a man, I think, who had eight children by four different women, um, which came to a head in 2001 when he died, or 2000 when he died, and then 2001 when his children, there was a huge battle of succession now.
0: So for your work... Um, when you are in Korea, what does field research look like for the studying that you're doing and the information that you're gathering?
1: Yeah, so this was a tricky thing to figure out for a long time. I I, um, had, I knew that to do, I wanted to do a study of office life. Uh, I found working with office workers very interesting, very fun. Uh, A lot of you know, I, I like the fact that it was intensive in the sense of, you, you know, with each other all day. But actually, convincing a company to do that is is quite difficult. And I spent about three months of my research period just going around to different companies. I had a proposal. I said I had different reasons why they might think this research is great for academia, great for the study of Korean corporations. Uh, like any kind of risk-averse manager, they all said... Well, that's great, but no thanks. But they, I mean, they did do a lot of interviews, but even if, if I were a manager, I also probably would have said, no, I don't want a <laughs> foreigner coming in who's just going to take notes on everything we do. So where did you finally get your foot in the door? So I had to, um, I well, I was trying not to go through relations that uh, that I knew I was trying to be as objective as I could in, in terms of the company that I ended up with. As it happened, a... Um, an alumni connection through a university I attended uh, had helped me before and I reached out to him again and I said you know I'm you know interested in getting an internship you know and, and doing some research inside the company and this guy um, was extremely helpful in that he was the um, third generation of a very small table company uh, in the steel industry uh, but it was a perfect kind of combination because it was a it was the I like to call it the the smallest big company in Korea, uh, because it was—it's was still structurally a big company, but not quite the big institutional apparatus of, say, Samsung. Can you say the name? No, I can't. Okay. Uh, Top yeah. secret. Understand? <laughs> <Understood>. Yeah. <laughs> Though my they, my coworkers often joke that even if I said the name, no one would know what it is, because okay. <laughs> uh, usually most people only know one steel company in Korea. So, because to do that field work is requires working there every day. So actually, I had requested to uh, work in the HR department. Uh, which to them was just totally bizarre. Um, it still is a little bizarre even when I think about it. Um, but I worked essentially in in an HR department of the headquarters of a of a conglomerate for a year. Every day, wearing a suit. Um, I was an intern officially. They knew I was researching. Um, they didn't exactly know what I was researching. And truth, I didn't know for a while, too. So did you have, have your own desk? I had my own desk. I was part of a team. I uh, became very close with about... Uh, The seven or eight members of that team. What was Uh, your role in the team? Uh, Technically intern. Uh, They didn't really know what I was going to do for the first couple weeks. Um, I think the very first week I got there, I just sat at my desk and didn't do anything. Um, In Korea, they would refer this to as parachuting in, nakasan, or nakasan-aroturokanda, or something like that. Uh, where you where you were just I mean it's just nepotism to their eyes right so just oh the, the owner said hire him okay they're gonna hire him figure out what he's gonna do later and that was only later that they figured out that I could do something so I actually got to work for about four months on a satisfaction survey that went out to the whole company that was a very fascinating process I mean kind of simple in some regards I mean not not the most high Uh, intensity kind of project.
0: Um, So, so like, a great part of the research was really about actually experiencing what it's like to participate in a company?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some sense, when you're, you know, when what I like about anthropology is it's a little bit like acting, uh, in the sense of you just kind of forget where you were, and then you're just like, oh, am I a corporate worker? You know, after a couple months, and you... And you're just like, oh, I guess I could live as a corporate worker. You know? So you know like, when you get to that moment that you're like, oh, okay, I'm definitely, I've definitely left the ranch. So did you still have your sense of identity as a researcher? Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was taking notes profusely. Um, did you feel I, subversive? No, um, not directly. I didn't, you know, in that kind of environment, you have to be very careful about what, not necessarily about what you're doing, but about the kind of positions or questions that you ask other people. So you don't go up to someone and say, "Can I interview about how much you hate the company?" <laughs> you know, just because you never know, yeah. you know, what that will do for them. So you know, for the most part, and, and these things can also just shift very quickly. So if you ask the wrong questions, and their radars go up, you know, you can you can be out of there in a heartbeat. So for a long time, I just tried to be a good worker and just do my just do whatever they asked me to do, uh, drink whatever they gave me to drink. Um, I uh, put in my time that way,
0: um, and I think that worked as a strategy. And Did, did you put in, like, typical office man hours, like 12-hour days and stuff?
1: Yeah, well, these days, you know, as you might have known, the office hours are going down. Okay. Uh, yeah, they, where I was, they were trying to set a model for, you know, what good office hours were, but it was still get in by 8. The official day started at 8.30, um, and then uh, the official day was over at about 5.30, People probably left around 6.30. Okay. Uh, it's not but, terrible. Yeah, but then <laughs> we would probably go out about three days in a week. Right. <laughs> uh, so that was, you know, it, it was fun, uh, depending on who you're with. Uh, uh, how yeah. do you deal with hangovers in a corporate job? Like <laughs> just hydration? Uh, oh, there's lots of strategies, of course. But um, they, you know, one is my boss would say, well, n- you know, no, never make a phone call before 9 o'clock or something like that. Like, if you have a meeting on a Friday morning, you know, presumably Thursday night, if you're drinking. You know, no one. You know, never have a meeting before one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> um, but the most important thing is, of course, getting in on time. Right. Um, and at least, you know, if you're just staring at your screen for a couple of hours, I don't think anyone's gonna.
0: So, w- w- when was yeah. the four month uh, uh, internship? What, what year? It was actually a twelve month internship. Twelve month internship. Yeah, yeah. What, what um,
1: year? I started. Uh, well, not very long ago, in July twenty. 14 and mm-hmm. ended in the end of June 2015. Uh-huh. So it was and basically almost 12 months. Is that the last time you were in Korea? That was the last time I was in Korea, yeah. Then I packed up and moved back here okay. to Ann
0: Arbor. Let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been thinking about and writing about sure. in terms of your dissertation. Uh, one thing that you discuss is vertical circulation of management communication in the chaebol, in which the whole apparatus is conceived as a kind of vertical channel, starting with local mm. offices and ending in the chairman. Um, tell me more about how these relationships interact.
1: right So part of the what I want to do in this study and is is or my research in general is is think about not just okay well, what's happening in a meeting and say the interpersonal relationship between a manager and his employee because that's that's what everyone tends to focus on, um, but really start to think about commun corporations as as structured fundamentally around communicative processes. so, which is not just to say interactions between managers, but if you think about what people are doing in meetings um, or when they're reviewing files, is they're taking some information, synthesizing it, uh, editing it, and then preparing it for movement up to somewhere else. I mean, a figurative up. I mean, sometimes it's literal when it goes up the floor. But And essentially a lot of the, the movement, the directionality, if you think about it, in a corporation is going from, say, a local sales office to... Kind of the the manager in charge of that office to, say the headquarters of that subsidiary getting synthesized and that eventually kind of percolates up to the chairman, and and it doesn't just move by itself. I mean it it's people are people make it move. So all the guys I was working with in the headquarters of this company were essentially getting information up from below, tweaking it, massaging it. There's different kind of terms you can use, uh, editing it condensing it, and then making it palatable for the chairman so the chairman can get a sense of what's going on in his, um, his quote-unquote, sort of empire, you know, in, in across the whole company, I mean, across the whole
0: world in some sense. So you write about four directionalities, uh, up, down, out, and in. This means the ways in which employees and shables communicate within and outside of the corporate structure. Um You provide some evidence regarding up or vertical, Mm -hmm. um, and you address the concept of lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are shadow organizational connections that are seen as political connections between chains of workers. You say that even these putative counterpublics of Korean corporate life are understood in this vertical line format. These are understood to be secret paths to success, whereby one aligns oneself with who has the hot hand Who's favorite or who has better connections than oneself? The hot hand, what's that?
1: Right, so um, any corporate worker will tell you, probably not on the record, but uh, over a drink, about what a line is. And they'll use, literally use the word line or line. Um, sometimes they'll use the word true, true um, chapter or something like that to grab onto a line. Um, and, and you hear this a lot. I mean, you might imagine, like, uh, it's, it's easy to imagine, in some sense, you want to be in a uh, you want to be in a successful area, and you want to attach yourself to the best people. So, your PhD, you want to get you know where they're doing the hottest research. You don't want to go to where they're doing boring stuff. Um, so, in a corporation, people are highly sensitive to where the kind of hot hand of that department is. And the hot hand is my word. I don't know. Um, but they, you know, so which department has the the manager that's favored by the CEO and which department has the manager that's disfavored, um, if you might imagine, by um, the CEO or by the HR department? Because if you, the idea being that if you're under either the hot manager or the cold manager, so to speak, your future will depend on that person, right? And that's so that's up. Yeah, that's up. So, but people, lines work vertically. So, it's not like somehow where we imagine it that we have friends in a company, a line literally is like people that you can connect yourself to. You know, I'm connected to this manager and he's connect, and he's he went, he was four years uh, below that executive at Seoul National. And so that means that executive is going to help out my manager if the executive gets promoted. Uh, and that means that I'm going to get promoted or helped out um, if my manager gets helped out. So having a line is, is a kind of, Something that people are aware of in a company. You might even tell, sometimes you hear parents tell children, like in TV shows, like, you know, you need to find a good line, you know, don't be in a crappy department, that kind of thing, you know, because it's seen as a way that you can actually move up the company um, through, through connections um, rather than just through, you know, some imaginary idea of merit. Right. You know, so yeah. you,
0: you say that, like, uh, counter to some ways to general hierarchy and promotion yeah. policies the up notion is imagined as a way to work in a way that follows the vertical pathway, but with hidden communication. So what is hidden communication? Right. So one thing
1: that's interesting about lines is that people imagine them as sort of these, as if they're the mafia of, you know, a corporation, right? You know, that there's always a secret kind of trajectory or line is kind of a backroom idea that there's something behind what's official that is you know really kind of governing what's happening and, and the stuff that's official is just 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 that it's just superficial you know it's just um so what i'm trying to think about in this dissertation is you know how do we know what the official is and and thinking about these different back channels i mean thinking about lines somewhat analogously to you know how do you know what the official channel in a corporation is right they don't have it's not like they have pneumatic tubes running up the whole thing You know, you have, you know, you can have a back channel where two guys go outside and smoke and talk about the, you know, most serious, say, HR issues or strategy issues. Um, That becomes a kind of back channel to other kinds of discourse that are happening. So thinking about the mutability or the kind of ephemerality of what what an official channel is and how people take different strategies to negotiate, you know, their position on that channel.
0: That's the Koreophile for this week. You can find new episodes of the Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher, and as a featured contributor at Koreafm.net, Koreabridge.net, and AngloInfoSor. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find the Korea File there too, and on Twitter at the File, with daily links and current news about the peninsula. And our fundraising campaign is live. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, and enter the Korea File in the search bar. Thanks for your support. Every contribution helps to keep this podcast on the air. Mm-hmm. Music on this episode is Shin jung Hyun and the Donkeys, featuring Yi Jung-Hwa in their 1969 song, My Hearts. The next episode of The Korea File will be out June 25th. That's part three of my interview with Michael Prentice. Until then, thanks for listening. From Montreal, I'm Andre Goulet.